You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? I want to begin reading in verse 5. And the topic is called Be Prayerful as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading uh, verses 5 through 11. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. Jesus, of course, is teaching here, and he says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street, on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and give us today our daily bread. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we continue our study in your word that you would help us to understand your word and to understand your will and your ways. We confess, Lord, that sometimes we overcomplicate things that are meant to be pretty straightforward and simple. So, Lord, we pray that you would guide us, you'd help us to simply speak the simple truth of your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Here's a fact. Everyone prays, <laughs> which is why Jesus begins not with a command to pray, saying you must pray, but he begins with a comment, when you pray. Everyone prays one time or another in some ways, and they may be only foxhole prayers that they throw up in times of crisis. I have what I call my Aeroflot prayer. Um, I used to say the theme of uh, Russian national airlines, especially in country, was the airline where even the atheists pray, because it was always kind of scary uh, getting into the plane and seeing the conditions of things. There's one website I found for atheists to share and have fellowship around nothing, I guess, but uh, their motto was, thank God there's no God. And I thought, here they are, they're praying against something that they want us to believe doesn't exist, but they're still praying. Everyone at some time, somewhere, someplace, somehow prays. For example, I was a, when I was a young man, <clears throat> right after I'd gotten married, I had a, a job working in an in a auto wrecker's yard. Basically, my job was to go out and strip parts off of old cars uh, and uh, I remember <clears throat> one day sitting in the, in the office, which was just basically a converted van cab, and they had the stove going because it was freezing cold out in the month of January. And uh, the owners were talking about how business was so bad and what, trying to figure out what they could do to get the business to go forward. And as there came a silence in the conversation, I said, well, I think I know what your problem is. And they both looked at me like, what do you know about anything? And I said, you know, I listen to you guys all day, and I hear you praying, God, damn this, and God, damn that. And I said, he's just answering your prayer. 
they kind of looked puzzled and went on to something else. A friend of mine who was working late one night in the engine, he said that one of the guys was turning a bolt and it's, his wrench slipped. He busted his knuckle against the, the side of the engine and he threw the wrench down and he said, God, you know what he said. And, and his partner turned to him and said, stop. That's why we're having all these problems. <laughs> so I saw it had some... Uh, some impact on him. But you see, instinctually, we pray when we've run out of options and run out of resources, when our our needs are great and the situation seems dire, we pray much like David did in Psalm 61 when he said, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. I realize that I don't have what it takes to get there. I need God to intervene in my moment, in my circumstance that God lead me to a place where that can happen. In part, this happens as Solomon explained in Ecclesiastes 3, that he says that God has set the reality of eternity into our hearts. There's an awareness that there is an eternal reality, and it's written there in our hearts. In fact, we may try to ignore it, we may try to deny it, but God, as Jeremiah put it, has engraved it on the tablets of our hearts. So the question is never, do we pray, but rather, how do we pray? Which is why Jesus begins this whole thing by giving a warning. He says, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, hypocrite is a term that we throw around a lot in our usual conversation. But originally, this word hypocrites in Greek meant a, a, a stage player or an actor in the Greek theater. These men, and it was always men, men and women weren't allowed to be actors. They would put on long black robes that covered their body completely, and they would hold up masks to imitate the various characters. And so they pretended to be someone other than who they really were. And they spoke with words that were not their own or didn't come from their hearts. They were written by someone else. They were recited. They were memorized and repeated. They were literally just being mimics or imitators, or we might say they were being pretenders. Their true identity is something that was hidden and disguised to convince the listener that they were someone other than who they really were. Jesus often used this phrase, this term, to describe what he called the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, the really kind of the religious leadership of his day who had over time become more politicians than pastors. They were more into playing a part than they were in leading the flock. Today, we describe a hypocrite as someone who tells others not to do things that they themselves are doing. They conveniently forget their own faults so they can point out your faults to you, which tend to be the same ones they have. Now, we know that there are hypocrites in the church. It's something that's often leveled as an accusation against the church and Christianity in general. But I find that hypocrites exist everywhere. You're going to find them in the office. You're going to find them in the school. You'll find them certainly within politics. You'll find them in law enforcement, and you'll even find it amongst lawbreakers. You'll see it in the law courts, and you'll see it in the sports courts. Hypocrisy is something that expresses itself in every area of life, in every relationship, because at its core is this desperate effort to convince ourselves and others that we're better than we know we really are. 
It's the fact that we have so much trouble owning our own fallibility and feeling that if other people knew who we really were, they wouldn't accept us, they wouldn't receive us, they certainly wouldn't like us. And so we become pretenders, we, we wear a mask. We all do this. So that when we talk about people being hypocritical, we have to understand we're all guilty of this. If you want to find a hypocrite, just go in the bathroom and look in the mirror and you'll see one. <laughs> now, fortunately, that's not the sum total of who you are. But you see, the hypocrite's greatest concern is not to be seen or heard by God, but to be seen favorably and heard willingly by other people. That's why Jesus described him. He said, they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. What they actually love is to be seen by men. The word love there is a philia, phileo in Greek, literally means having a, a fond affection for it. They, they love being center stage and portraying themselves as being grander or, in their case, more spiritual than they were in actuality. Not that they were so unspiritual, but the truth of the matter was they were no spiritual, more spiritual than anybody else. It would be like me to be up here pretending that I have a greater level of accomplishment of spirituality than you do. And unfortunately, there are many people who think like that. Pastor, pray for me because I, I know God hears your prayers. And my response is, are you sure? And why do you think he would hear my prayer more quickly than he'd hear your prayer? Because it's not based upon what we know or how much merit we've earned. It's based upon the love of God for us, not our ability to lift ourselves up to some pretended level of spirituality. Amen. But what he's condemning here are really what I call performance prayers. Prayers that are given and they're designed to be admired by other men rather than to be desired by God. The God who Jesus again says in this passage is unseen and yet he sees what is done in secret. He is the unseen God who sees everything, which is why the psalmist, speaking of it in Psalm 44, said he knows all of the secrets of the heart. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. There's nothing about me that he doesn't know. In fact, he knows more about me than I know about myself. It happens all the time. I suddenly am exposed to some part of my personality or being or character or nature that I wasn't really aware or I would like to flatter myself by saying it's no longer there. But I realize at the end of the day, it always comes to the same truth. I'm a sinner who's saved by grace and I can never escape that reality. That's why in Psalm 139, David wrote, he said, you perceive my thoughts from afar. In other words, before I have a chance to even think my thoughts, he's already read my thoughts. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And then he asks the question, where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to the depths of hell, you are there. In fact, Solomon added, in Proverbs 15, he says, even hell holds no secrets from God. Do you think he can't read human hearts? Yet even God who knows all and sees all doesn't desire to expose all, but rather, as Paul Solomon would say in chapter 10 of Proverbs, he desires to cover all. 
God who knows all and sees all is not in the business of exposing all, but rather to provide a covering for all the things that are wrong in your life. But for that to happen, prayer has to begin in secret. When Jesus says, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and Pray to your Father who is unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this doesn't preclude the idea of public praying, but rather what it suggests is that there's an honest sincerity and transparency in private, in secret, before our God. You see, many times we talk about, well, people need to be transparent. Um, and as if it's our job to go pry into their personal life and find all the gritty details. Believe me, I just happen to be one who I don't need to know. <laughs> I do not need to know. But God needs for you to know that you can talk to him in secret with the things that you did wrong. It's, it's often people will come to me after a service and say, Pastor, I want to ask your forgiveness. And I'll say, why? I said, well, I, I've been working so long, I'm so tired, I fell asleep in your message. I said, you know, you just outed yourself for no good reason. Whether you're awake or not isn't my problem. <laughs> I'm not losing sleep over you not losing sleep, okay? But the simple fact is that that isn't really something that I need to know necessarily. I mean, what difference does it make? And sometimes we feel like we have to be this open book that everybody knows every stinking detail about our lives. Many of those details, frankly, are none of their business. They're God's business. And the only time you need to go to someone else and say, hey, I need to speak to you about this is because as you brought it to God, God says, you need to go make it right with your brother. But everywhere we find that God talks about exposing the inner truths about ourselves, it's always done in a pattern of secrecy, beginning, first of all, with your relationship with God, to be confessional in your relationship with God. The key to this kind of non-hypocritical prayer, whether it's private or public, is that it be directed to God alone. You see, the challenge for me when I begin this service as I open with prayer or anyone else does is not to be praying in a way that you will say, wow, wasn't that a wonderful prayer? The challenge is that it's really just me talking to God in preparation to talking to you on the behalf of God because the danger is that it just becomes performance. It becomes this perfunctory thing that we do to get people to be impressed with us. That is the very thing that Jesus was condemning. Warren Wiersbe put it so simply when he said, we must pray in secret before we pray in public. It is wrong to pray in public if we're not in the habit of praying in private. Observers may think that we're practicing prayer when we are not, and this is hypocrisy. But if the only time I ever pray is when I stand in front of a group of people and say, let us now bow our heads as we talk to our Father in heaven in Jesus' name. You know, uh, that's hypocrisy. Now, I'm reminded of the woman who commented to a pastor friend one time uh, 
after the worship service, she said, the worship wasn't very good today, was it? And Malcolm's response was, Madam, it wasn't for you. <laughs> Let God be the one who determines whether it's very good. But I find people are often intimidated in praying, particularly in praying with other people, because they feel like, well, it's got to reach a certain level of sophistication or quality. I need to be able to pray in a way that will really, you know, other people can say amen to. Now, prayer may include others, but it's not for others. If it's directed to men's ears, then, it, that's, then only men will hear what you have to say. But if it's directed to God, God is the only one who needs to hear it. Which is why Jesus not only taught us how to pray, but he also taught us how not to pray. Let me give you a few, few examples. That First of all, prayer is not a ritual. And what I mean that is that the Bible never instructs us as to what kind of body position we're supposed to adopt when we're praying, how to hold our hands one way or another, or to kneel or to stand, to lie prostrate, or to look up or to look down. I did that backwards, didn't I? Anyway, the Bible never gives any kind of those instructions. And I know some of you are going to say, well, I can find a passage where it says you're supposed to lift your hands or, you, or they fell prostrate on their face. Granted, all of the above are mentioned as postures of prayer because none of them really constitute what prayer is. Now, you may be asking me the question, well, why do we have people close their eyes in prayer? Well, let me tell you why I close my eyes in prayer. I have the concentration of a goldfish, and anything distracts me, and so I close my eyes so I can focus on what I'm praying about, because if I don't, I'm watching everything else going on around me. There are times where I pray with my eyes wide open. When I'm driving a car, for example. <laughs> I knew a guy who tried it the other way. In fact, I knew two guys who closed their eyes and said they were gonna allow the Holy Spirit to drive the car. <clears throat> and one of them said, boy, was that cop convicted. Which cop? The one at the accident. You know, so the other guy rolled in a ditch and was upside down and hung there upside down in his car rebuking himself for having such weak faith. And I just said, the problem wasn't a weak faith. Your problem is a weak mind. <laughs> the only posture that actually matters is the posture of the heart. And I, I, think, I think this should be obvious, but I know that there are a lot of people who think, no, you've, you've got to be kneeling. Or, and, you know, let's be frank. We read these testimonies of great men and women of prayer, and they had calluses on the end of their knees that looked like camel knees because they spent so many hours on their knees. I'm sorry, I got bony knees. It hurts after a very short period of time. That's why I have an exercise pad that I can kneel on so I can absorb the discomfort if I'm going to kneel. But one of my favorite postures is I call it the recliner prayer. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm serious. You know, somehow people have this idea that unless it hurts, God won't hear it. I find that when I'm praying and I'm in pain, I have trouble focusing on what I'm praying for, beyond, especially if you want me to pray for you. All I can think about is, oh, God, this hurts. 
But secondly, there is no formula. There are no right words. There aren't necessarily any wrong words. In fact, Paul said in Romans 8, 6, he says, we do not know what we ought to pray for. Sometimes I admit that to God. I just simply say, God, I, I don't know enough about the situation to even know what to ask you to do. Do what is the best thing to do. I don't know whether somebody needs to have their face shoved in the mud or they need to be lifted up and exalted and praised. I don't know what, what is the right response 90% of the time, but I simply say, God, if they're hurting, then take away the pain. If they're defeated, lift them up in encouragement, those kind of things. But in the end of the day, I don't really understand the complete plan of God, even for my own life, much less for someone else's. We have friends and family that do not know Jesus as far as we can tell, and we pray for them all the time. But sometimes I quite honestly say, God, I don't know but I know that you love them and I know you want them to know how much you love them, so I just pray you'd do things in their life which would convince them that. But even beyond that, Paul says, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Here's an arrogance that my words can actually reach God's heart. Without the Holy Spirit interceding through me, my words probably sound like children's babble. But God doesn't listen to our words. He listens to our hearts. And some of you desperately need to be encouraged in your prayer life because you feel like, well, I'm not a verbal person. I'm not good at expressing myself, and I don't like to pray in public because other people will think, well, that was a stupid prayer. I t let me tell you about stupid prayers. The young lady, when I was first a Christian, I knew who, um, well, her gift, she would admittedly say, my gift is to annoy other people. And, and she was really gifted at it. And um, I remember one day she came to me and she had, in my estimation, a really nice Bible, which was kind of a, a fetish of mine at that time is to have the nicest Bible you could have. And she had a really nice one. And she said, I'm praying that God will give me an even better Bible. And so I rebuked her in the name of Jesus. You need to be content with what God has given you. You've got a great Bible. I wish I had a Bible like that. That's a terrible thing to be asking God. And the next time I saw her at church, she's holding this brand new Bible and says, look what Jesus gave me. <laughs> You see, the thing I didn't know was that not too long after that, the Lord was going to take her home. And as I looked back at it and realized God was love-bombing her in preparation for eternity. God was love-bombing her. You see, we think we know so much, and yet oftentimes we're really reflecting on our own perspectives. You know, the Bible never even tells us how long we're going to pray. I, I used to hate those sermons when the pastor would look at and saying, how many hours have you spent in prayer today? <laughs> a friend of mine one time got, gave a message. He said, if you're not spending at least two hours every morning before the Lord, you're backslidden. <laughs> I loved it. Gail Irwin came up afterwards. He says, you know, I got up about 10 o'clock 
made a cup of coffee, kind of sat around, watched a little TV, read the paper, and I hope sometime today I'll get into the Word. And I thought, why did he say that? He was trying to make a point. God doesn't sit there with a stopwatch and say, okay, wait till you meet the quota. You see, if you study the Word, what you'll find is some of the shortest prayers in the Bible are some of the most powerful. Elijah is competing with the 450 prophets of Baal. And they go on for six hours, cutting themselves, running around, chanting, shouting. It was almost like a charismatic prayer meeting going on. And finally, when they drop in exhaustion for having poured themselves out, Elijah gets up and he goes, Lord, show them that you are the true God and I am your servant. Wham! Fire comes from heaven and consumes the altar and everything on it. One of the shortest prayers in the Bible, yet one of the most powerful prayers that we ever read of in the Bible. The Bible doesn't tell us you have to pray so long. Now, I know somebody's going to say to me, but didn't Paul say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to pray constantly? <laughs> Do you know the difference between constant and continuous? You see, the word continuous means without interruption. In other words, if he said pray continuously, then we would have to pray 24-7. Constantly means regularly, an ongoing, a repeated behavior, not a continuous behavior. Those are major distinctions to be made. Now, this is kind of a big issue because when I was younger in the Lord and early in my ministry, I read just about every book I could find on prayer, and when I got done, I was so discouraged <laughs> that I thought, I can't live up to the standards of these deeply holy men. But I realized that God's reasonable. If you say to somebody, have you prayed enough today, how much is enough? Because there's no numerical measurement given us in the Bible. It just says, make prayer a regular part of your day, of your life. And that's not hard to do. We're also, thirdly, told not to pray repetitively, as if we're chanting some kind of mantra. Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. I often hear people make statements like, well, that prayer meeting lasted two hours, as if that's some kind of significant measurement. But I frankly, if I'm going to pray for two hours, I'm going to start doing a lot of repeating. See, many religions teach mantras. I mean, I was in Hinduism. I chanted my mantras. They, they give you mystical words, magical phrases, spinning prayer wheels, counting beads. But I discovered that those practices are more about controlling your mind than they are with communicating with God. That the focus was not our Father in heaven, but the God essence within. It was really just a matter of self-discipline and self-worship. And I would say that Christians can fall into those same traps. In fact, how many times have I been in Protestant tr uh, tradition churches where in some point in the service they say, let us all now repeat the Lord's Prayer together. 
And sadly, oftentimes that is done by people who rarely, if ever, pray at any other time except when they're reciting that prayer publicly. I'm not saying there's necessarily anything wrong with that, but if that is the extent of your prayer life, then that's a vain babbling. It's a meaningless repetition that we may criticize other churches who say, go and say so many Hail, Fa- Hail Marys or Our Fathers, and you know, after you do so many of these, whatever the count or the number is, then you'll be absolved from your sin. It's the same idea. That has much more to do with paganism than it ever has to do with Christianity. Because behind all of these kind of ideas is that God can be appeased or placated or bribed by the sacrifice of my words and and of my time. And if we give him enough words and we give him enough time, he'll give us what we want. Which is why Jesus said, do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before he, you ask him. If God knows what I need before I ask him, and he said, don't worry, I'm going to take care of your needs, it really brings into question prayers that are predominantly about God give me this and give me that and do this for me and do that. I'm convinced that the primary purpose of prayer is not to petition God for answers to specific things as much as it is to bring me into agreement with God's will. That I'm not trying to persuade God. I certainly don't want to be guilty of fourthly manipulating God or thinking that I can, that I can persuade him to see the wisdom of my thoughts and my ways. Because as C.S. Lewis put it, prayer does not change God, it changes me. That when I come before the Lord in prayer, it is about bringing my life into agreement with his will not trying to persuade him that what I want is a good idea. Because I don't even know, oftentimes, what is the best choice for me, or for my family, or for my ministry, or the people in this church even. It's always, Lord, your will. See, prayer is not a contractual agreement whereby we convince, bribe, or sell God on the wisdom and benefits of our own ideas or how our life should be working. Rather, prayer is the means by which God brings my will into agreement with his will. That more than any other thing, what prayer is about is a submission of my life to what God wants for it. Which brings me to, finally, so how are we supposed to pray? What's the positive side of that? Well, it's interesting because Jesus gives us a model of prayer, if you will, a pattern of prayer. And I do not believe that he said, this is the format, now say these words and repeat these after me. But what he is revealing to his disciples who had asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray, he revealed to them the patterns or the elements that should be part of any prayer conversation. And it begins with, he says, our Father in heaven. There is this relational respect that has to be there. Because when I call God my Father, I'm declaring, as as Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 8, he says, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand. Now, if you look at the illustration, a clay pot is not 
deciding what its shape's going to be. It's not deciding what its purpose is going to be. It surely doesn't decide its coloration. All of that is in the hand of the master potter, and he determines what it's to be. Isaiah was making a very important point in his own day. The conflict that existed in their culture in Judah at that time was that the people wanted their lives to look one way, and God said, no, your life is supposed to look this way, and they refused to allow that to happen. And they suffered the consequence of that as a result. But the whole idea is, he's my father, he's my creator, he provides for me, he sustains me. And oftentimes when I have conversations with believers about the issue of creationism versus evolution, and they struggle with you know, the creationist view being unscientific, but what gets lost in that whole conversation, especially by Christians is what really is fundamental in what seems to be a scientific discussion and is not. It's a conflict between two religious positions. One is that there is creationism and the other one is scientism. More centrally, who do I belong to? If God created me, then I am responsible and should be responsive to him. I belong to him. He is my creator. He is my maker. He has caused me to be who I am. Scientism says... You caused your own self to percolate out of the swamp pond. And like the little choo-choo who said, I think I can, I think I can, you went from protoplasm to politician in one generation. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is really who owns you. And at the end of the day, the argument is over that. Who is the Lord and the master of my life? If we self-created, if we spontaneously generated ourselves into who we are today in the hope that one day we'll spontaneously generate into something even higher, or if we go to cyborgs and we're part man, part machine, so that we can live forever and our consciousness will always survive, what a wonderful, terrible thought. The end of the day is, what am I talking about? I'm talking about, I created myself, I made myself, I am the master of my life. I'm the captain of my ship. You have to understand, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says, you were created by God, for God. And the most, the, the most basic approach to God is to simply say, my Father in heaven my Father in heaven. As Malachi would put it to rebellious Judah, he says, if I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? You see, all prayer begins with this simply humbling ourselves before God and saying, God, everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that has come before, everything that is now, and everything that will be in the future comes from your hand. When David in 1 Chronicles 29 dedicated his entire fortune to the building of the temple, he said, what is it for me to give back to you that which was yours in the beginning? I've only taken what you gave to me and I'm giving it back to you. What big deal is that? Because he recognized the fatherhood of God, that central lordship role that he had over his people. Being cavalier, about who God is may be hip in some quarters, but it's not very pleasing to God. That's why we have to begin with that sense of respect and honor. 
And he goes on. It's not just simply that respecting him as my father, but there's a kind of a positional respect when he says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not a name that we hear a lot, but it means that we handle or we express the name of God in a glorious way. Deuteronomy 5.11 says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. I like the way that Peterson interprets that when he says to misuse it in curses or in silly banter or irrelevantly. So that we find a culture that often says, Jesus Christ, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Or we, you know, God D and all this kind of stuff. And people throw this out left and right. And what we realize is God says, the very disrespect that's being shown by turning me into a silly comment or a curse word is a misuse of my word, and you're not hallowing my name in your presence. You're not speaking respectfully of it. We live in an, an amazingly disrespectful culture. We, we don't respect authority, and we speak disparagingly of people in, in authority of, on all levels. And we're just an amazing, incredibly, deeply disrespectful people. And in, we do it oftentimes in the name of being casual and being familiar, and yet that doesn't mean that we have to also be disrespectful or dishonoring. We become a culture that thinks it's okay to banter around things about people that are unflattering and slanderous. And so it's not surprising that when we don't understand that we're supposed to have a reverence for God's name and reverence for him when we approach him in prayer that that, that soon begins to leak out into every kind of authority in our life. It's one of those cultural realities that many people don't think much about, but it's a simple reality that when culture decays and falls apart, that the answer isn't that we suddenly control everybody, take all their guns and all their weapons. It's kind of funny, this whole debate, because right now London has just superseded New York with the highest murder rate. Guns are banned. They're using machetes and knives. In Sweden has this increasing growing crime rate and violence rate, and they're not using guns. They're actually buying grenades and throwing them into crowds. Norway has the, one of the highest rate of murder, uh, of mass murder in the world, and guns are illegal. You can't even own one. The problem isn't, isn't guns. The problem is people's hearts that we, we want to treat all of the symptoms of the culture, but really in the end, what it comes down to is that this sinfulness, this anger and rage and rebelliousness that drives a culture, and it begins by not honoring God. If we don't honor God, it's only a matter of time before we dishonor the world around us. The secondly, prayer is to be submissive. When he says, your kingdom come, we might want to put in parentheses, not mine. Your will be done on earth, not mine, just as it is in heaven. That prayer really begins when I, before I ask God for anything, I begin by saying, Lord, only give me what you have for me. Only let me desire what you want for me. Your will be accomplished in my life. Your kingdom be established in my life. Let me live as if you are my kingdom. That idea of being submitted to the will of God. And thirdly, 
When he says, give us today our daily bread, he's talking about a state of dependence. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy 8 when he was tempted by the serpent. Deuteronomy 8.3 reads, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The idea is that my life is completely dependent upon God. The very air that I breathe, the very pulsing of my, of my heart, all of those things are, are the consequence of God's mercy and graciousness. It's the Lord who gives life, and it's the Lord who takes it away. That the moment of my death is not the consequence of how well I took care of myself and exercised and did all the right things. Now, I'm not discouraging you from that. You probably feel better and look better if you do those kind of things. But the underlying issue is at the end of the day that God gives life and God takes away. And there are many people who have done all the right things and dropped dead. <laughs> and then there's other people who live forever and shouldn't live at all. I remember seeing a guy being interviewed in the Today Show many years ago. He was 100 years old and they said, what's the secret of your long life? He said, good whiskey and good cigars. He says, my brother never smoked, he never drank, and he only lived to be 96. <laughs> I might say the secret of his life may have been a good sense of humor. Or it may be just because God knew if he died before then, he'd go to hell. I don't know. But the end of the day is that your life is in his hands in every way, and you're dependent upon me. And you wonder sometimes why it is that God lets you get into these strict places, these restricted situations. There's not enough money. There's not enough food. There's not enough gas. There's not enough this, not enough that. Did it ever occur to you that it may be to bring you to the place where you simply say, God, if you don't meet our need, our need won't be met? Oh, believe me, my wife and I went through many years of being there where we just simply said, God, please give us our daily bread. And when he did, you just rejoiced and thanked him for it. You see, that's, that's the simplicity of, of, of talking to God in prayer. It's, it doesn't have to be highly structured, highly disciplined, framed and stated and put. It's a simple cry of a heart that comes to a God who we respect and who we depend on and have submitted ourselves to and said, God, my life is in your hands. I trust you. That's the kind of a prayer that God hears. Prayer is not a complex ritual. And I hesitate to even call it a spiritual discipline. What I would say of it is that those who feel self-sufficient and those who feel like that they've got it all together don't pray. They don't pray. Why should you? And that's why so often God brings you into these places where it's the uncurable disease or just that nagging ailment. That's why the marriage may be in this conflicted place that you don't seem to be able to resolve. This is why the financial issues sometimes become unresolved. And we think, oh God, if I just played the game right, I wouldn't have to deal with these things. The truth of the matter is God may be simply wanting you to bring you into a place of dependence. You see, what turned the head of Moses when he was in the wilderness 
literally doing his own thing was when he saw a bush that was burning, but it never stopped burning. If it had just burnt and been consumed, he would have gone, huh, strange fire, and moved on. But he saw it burn and burn and burn. Long after the combustibles are gone, the flame was still growing. And so he walked up to this burning bush to see what it was, and he heard a voice talking. It was the talking voice. Not to be confused with the three amigos singing bush. This is the talking bush. And it says, take the shoes off your feet, for where you stand is holy ground. And he has this encounter with God. Sometimes God puts burning issues in your life so that you'll recognize that every day and every moment of your life, you're standing on holy ground because you're living your life out before a holy God. And he wants you to be aware of that. He wants you to recognize that he has put you in a place where you can have a a difference. The prayer is nothing more than the simple cry of a constantly dependent, sometimes desperate soul And the amazing thing is when we do it, it's like the releasing of the miracle power of God. When Jesus' disciples, when when he was after the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6, and the people wanted to come and take him to make him to be their king because, after all, he he was promising a, a, a matzo ball in every pot. And Jesus said, if you can't, eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not worthy to follow me. And it says many of them turned away after that. And then he looked at the 12 and he said, do you want to leave also? And their response was, where else should we go? <laughs> to whom else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And the reality is, why do I pray? Because God alone has the power to fix things. God alone has the wisdom to give you sound judgment. God alone has the wisdom to guide and direct you in the paths that are best for you and best for your life. And God alone is the one who can deliver me from evil and temptation and keep the evil one from my life. God alone can heal a nagging habit or a bad attraction and appetite. God alone can do those things when we fall before him and say, Lord, unless you save, I will not be saved. Prayer is something that you can do constantly because it doesn't require any complex preparation. It is nothing more than a conversation with God. A conversation with God. It's a conversation that your Father in Heaven really desires to have with you. Ask, and it shall be given, he said. (laughs) Press down, overflowing. (laughs) You just go, oh, wow. God is so anxious to bless me. If I just come before him and say, Lord, you're my Father, I'm your child, (laughs) I submit myself to you because I am totally dependent upon you for the very breath that escapes my lungs thousands of times every day. Your will be done in my life, Lord. I don't even know the best path for me to take. I don't often know what is the best choices and situations. Lord, your will be done. Guide me and direct me in those paths. Because in the end, what I want more than anything else is that your kingdom will come 
That's what this world needs. They don't need a new law. They need a new king. And I want that to be true in the world around me. But God, today, even though there are battlefields and wars being fought all over the world, today the battlefield is right here, right now. The war is right here, right now. Lord, help me to win this battle for your kingdom and take ground for the kingdom of God today. Help me to expand his kingdom and take ground for the kingdom today. And how do we do that? We pray. We pray. I want you to know that if, if God has touched your life today through the things that I've shared, it's not because I shared them so well. It's because a lot of people have prayed that God would speak to you today because they prayed. Father, I pray that you would help us to pray. I pray that you deliver us from the noxious temptation to want to make it something religious or complicated or ritualistic, that you deliver us from those delusions that we often have, that somehow if we push the right buttons that the divine vending machine will deliver just the right candy bar that we need to satiate whatever craving we have at that moment. Oh God, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know needs that we have that we don't even yet recognize. And so Lord, as our Father in heaven, we ask that you would meet those needs in our life. But you do it in your way and your timing. And that what we would be impassioned with is the desire to know you to know you as our Father, to submit ourselves to the authority and the honor that comes with that position and realize that we depend upon you for everything, everything, absolutely everything. Convince us of that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 